From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Listen for and hear the word of God. Chronicles 29, 1-9. King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and experienced, and the work is great, for the temple will not be for mortals, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood. Besides great quantities of onks and great stones for settings, antony, colored stones, and all sorts of precious stones and marble in abundance, moreover in the different in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of the God, I give it to the house of my God, 3,000 talents of gold and the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by artisans. Gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating themselves today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the ancestral houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands and of the hundreds, and the officers of, over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord, into the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because these had given willingly, for with single mind they had offered freely to the Lord. King David also rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Harris. That is a long one. Well done. At this time, I'd like to invite any children who are with us in the sanctuary pre-K through third grade who would like to attend Godly Play to come meet Miss Katie just here near the doors. We'll see you guys later. Have a great time at Godly Play. And those of us staying here will turn now to our New Testament lesson for the morning, the same one we've had through this sermon series. It's the ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians, which is labeled Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, but is really one letter among several letters from Paul, the apostle, to the church at Corinth. Hear now God's word for you and for me this morning. Now it is not necessary for me to write you about the ministry to the saints, for I know your eagerness, which is the subject of my boasting about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not prove to have been empty in this case, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you. In this undertaking. 
So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for this bountiful gift that you have promised, so that it may be ready as a voluntary gift and not as an extortion. The point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, God scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. God, from this old letter to an old church, speak a new word to us this morning, that we who are listening and gathered here would go out better able to follow on your way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you grew up in church, and especially in a church that had an annual stewardship campaign or a giving season, I bet you heard part of this morning's text from 2 Corinthians as the motivating message. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, a church he founded, and his language is just so good for fundraising. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. And if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly, but if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. It's just chock full of punchy sound bites for campaign materials that seem to remind us to give and give often and give much. But as I was thinking about this text this week and what else it has to say after several weeks in a sermon series, I was reminded that this isn't just a text about money any more than the capital campaign that will be launched here in a few weeks is just about raising money. So this morning, we're going to zoom out a bit and see this letter in the larger context of a community's life. Imagine, if you will, a church. It's in a bustling city that has a very diverse population. It has citizens from different religious and ethnic and cultural backgrounds. This church draws its members from different parts of the city, but they come together to worship and to share a meal. Imagine what happens in that group or any group, whether it's a family or a workplace or a church, when different people come together. There's conflict. There's confusion about what is the right thing to do. 
There are rival groups that maneuver for control. There are inevitably hurt feelings. There are people with more prominence and power who lord it over those with less. And in spite of all that, there's also great joy and deep commitment. Maybe when I asked you to imagine a church, you pictured in your mind's eye this newish congregation in Corinth in the early 50s CE. Maybe. Or maybe you thought of this congregation because we're also such a church not so different from that church nearly 2,000 years ago. Paul's various letters to the Corinthians, and they're really letters to us too, they give a snapshot of life together. Life together is messy. It is sometimes contentious, and it only carries on because we are committed to loving one another in spite of and through the mess. Paul's letters are personal, If we read them all the way through, we go with him on a journey with people who have frustrated him and insulted him and who have also inspired and blessed him a lot like church. Paul's purpose in writing to the Corinthians, the chapter I just read, isn't just to fill coffers because Paul is not the Corinthian development officer. Paul is an apostle. He's a person trying to share the good news of the gospel, and he is their friend. He's one of the founders of this church, someone who pulled these disparate people together and is still, when he writes this letter, trying to guide them to a faithful way of life. He's worried about them. He's worried about keeping the church unified and committed to their faith. Our capital campaign is also not just about full coffers. It's about us, a group also still coming together from our different backgrounds and different work and different places in this bustling city, seeking a faithful way of life. It's about moving this now 173-year-old church. This room isn't that old, but the church is 173 years old, moving into a new century of life and ministry together. So this morning, this old letter speaks to us not just about making financial pledges, but about what it means to persevere in community. I found myself relearning some basic lessons about commitment from this text this week, and I offer them for our church today. This is a good old three-point Presbyterian sermon, so note takers, rejoice. First, this chapter and Paul's other letters to the Corinthians remind us that though life together is messy, we're committed to one another. There's no mistaking that Paul is frustrated with the church at Corinth. We learn in his first letter that there are divisions in the church, quarrels, he calls them. People have aligned themselves behind different leaders and they're kind of jockeying for position. So much that Paul pleads with them to be in agreement, to be united in the same mind and in the same purpose to proclaim the gospel. Paul then goes way into the weeds with a whole list of things, specific things that the church was fighting about and things they were doing wrong. From setting up these quarreling factions 
to a really quite salacious list of immoral practices, I won't name them, but you can go read them if you like, from bringing lawsuits against each other as their way of solving their differences to eating food that was sacrificed to idols, the list goes on. The Corinthians, in a word, are not doing what Paul taught them. They're sinning and not repenting. And on top of all that, someone or some ones in the church have maligned Paul himself. They hurt his feelings, and they made him defensive about his work there among them. So when we read these letters from Paul to this church he loves, we get a whole range of emotions that I think we've all known in community too. Disappointment sometimes and hope, impatience and persistence, personal hurt and personal resolve. If we think about those things and look at our own congregation, the challenges we face aren't exactly the same. I don't think anybody here is worried that the donut holes were sacrificed to idols. And to my knowledge, nobody is suing anybody else. I hope I don't hear otherwise after worship. But like any other church in any other time, we've often had to work through disagreement about what we're called to do. And what's more, we've had to find our way through all the seasons of conflict in the world in the last 173 years. Think about those. Wars. Fights for civil and human rights, economic disaster, a rapidly changing city and region and nation, racial inequity, income disparity, most recently, how to be a church at all in the middle of a pandemic. We come all the way to today, to this moment of discernment about what God is doing through us. You could read Paul's letters and come away exhausted from all the mess. And I have to think Paul himself got tired sometimes as he tried to be steadfast, riding the ups and downs with the Corinthian community as it found its way. But through it all, he remains committed to them. And he reminds them that they're committed to each other. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So keep alert, stand firm in your faith, be courageous, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. That was the first lesson. Second, this chapter reminds us that through all the messiness and all the missteps we make as communities together, God remains committed to us, and God provides all that we need. In fact, the only part of this chapter, of 2 Corinthians, that appears in the lectionary actually appears for Thanksgiving Day, because this is first and foremost a reminder about God's gifts to us. Those fundraising sound bites I mentioned earlier about God's love for a cheerful giver and sowing bountifully, the kind of giving Paul is calling for here is a response to God's faithfulness to us. Paul reminds that it is God who supplies the need for the sower, the seed for the sower, rather, and the bread for our food. God supplies the needs of the saints and provides every blessing in abundance. We can only share abundantly because God has provided us with enough of everything. And not just for our individual needs. We hear that God's provision is for everyone 
God's gifts aren't just about each of us having a full tummy each day. God's gifts bring justice and wholeness for the entire world. God scatters abroad and gives to the poor. It is God's righteousness that endures forever. Now, in the ancient world, there was a whole economy of gift-giving, and it was rooted generally in reciprocity. I think if we're honest, that's still true often for us today. So, for example, when someone gives us a gift, we might feel obligated to make them a gift in return. If we didn't think of them, if we didn't get them anything, we might even feel guilty and apologize maybe even miss the joy of receiving something unexpected because we're so focused on the need to repay. And on the flip side, if we give someone a gift and receive nothing, no gift, no thanks, nada in return, we feel some kind of way about that. We feel slighted or hurt or that our gift wasn't really valued. We see this gift-giving economy all over the New Testament. There are lots of examples of financial and tangible gifts that are repaid with something of similar value, and then many instances where spiritual gifts are repaid with hospitality. Think of Jesus and his disciples in their ministry traveling around. They're invited into people's homes and given seats at people's tables because of their preaching and teaching and Jesus' healing. And when the gift giver is God, whose gifts are too big ever to be repaid, we're called to two kinds of response. First, we give our thanks and our praise for God's unrepayable generosity. And second, we share. We share the abundance God has given to us with others. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's reminding the church about those two responses. God has upheld God's commitment and provided for their every need. So their response is to give thanks and to share generously. Paul writes, you will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? This sort of cycle of generosity that starts with God. God provides plenty. We respond by thanking and praising God and sharing from our abundance and ever committed to our well-being, God continues to provide. It's a lovely cycle. But this text isn't just about that idea. It isn't a call to give in the abstract. You've heard for several weeks now, and I just read it, the opening of the chapter where Paul mentions that there is a bountiful gift that the Corinthians have promised. And Paul is worried. He wants to make sure that they're giving voluntarily and they don't feel they're being extorted. He wants to make sure they aren't reluctant or under any compulsion, but that they're enthusiastic and cheerful about this. You've heard these themes pulled out in my colleagues' sermons over the last few weeks. But what bountiful gift is Paul talking about? We have to go back a bit into an earlier part of this letter to understand. Paul is calling the church to generous giving for a specific purpose. Paul's language is all about sharing. So he ties gift giving into this whole mode of life 
We share from the abundance we've received. Christians share in the suffering of Jesus Christ. We share in the sacraments. When we come together, we share in the work of proclaiming the gospel. And Paul asks the Corinthians to share specifically for Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are experiencing poverty. In chapter 8, he writes that these Christians have suffered an ordeal of affliction. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? An ordeal of affliction and extreme poverty. But in spite of that, their joy has led them to give beyond their means. So seeing the abundance that God has provided for the church at Corinth, Paul calls on them to share abundantly with their brothers and sisters in Christ For our note-takers, that was the second point. And it brings me to the third and final lesson, and that is that God's never-ending commitment to us brings with it a call. We, like the early church, are called to generosity with a purpose, the purpose of fulfilling God's mission for the world. We respond with our thanks and our praise, and also we are called to look around And see who in our own time is suffering an ordeal of affliction and extreme poverty. Paul presents us with a relevant call for this moment for us. He names the disparity between the abundance of some and the need of others. And he calls on the Corinthians to give, asking whether there is a fair balance between their present abundance and their brothers and sisters' need. So as we, as a church, 173 years strong, move into a season of preparation, we do well to remember that though life together is messy, we're committed to each other, that God remains committed to us and provides what we need, and that God's never-ending commitment brings us a call still and always, a call to give thanks and a call to share abundantly, cheerfully, generously in whatever we do and say and whatever we create and build to give so that God's purpose might be fulfilled. Thanks be to God for God's indescribable gift to us. Amen.